it's timely, it's insightful, it's motivating, it's empowering. It's time with Fred, your inspirational broadcast with host Fred Gaddy. Hello and welcome to the Time with Fred podcast. This is a podcast that challenges paradigms and mindsets that hold us back. There is a quote by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross that says, and I quote, the most beautiful people I've known are those who have known trials, who have known struggles, who have known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. And one of those beautiful people happens to be my guest today on the Time with Fred podcast, and she's in the person of Ori Ogunbaye, who joins us from London, England. So a little bit about Ori. Ori is a speaker, trainer, and coach with over 15 years experience in the speaking business. She is the CEO of Orit Lu Training and Development Limited and has delivered public speaking training to over 50,000 young people. Orit is the creator of the Thrive Model, which is a program that addresses confidence, communication, and mental health. And she is the author of Not For Six, Going From Hopeless to Hopeful. And this is a book that's coming out here very shortly. We're going to be hearing a little bit about that. Ori loves sharing her compelling story, which is raw and real and tends to evoke some real strong emotions in the listener, as well as offer hope to anyone who doubts themselves as an individual. Ori, welcome to the Time with Fred podcast today. Thank you. So before we get started, I, let, let, me, let me just ask, who is, who is Ori? Well, this is me. I mean, with me, what you see is what you get. I am a person who has experienced, how can I put it, some form of trials, but I've learned through, through them that no matter what we go through in life, if we have people who support us, who champion us, then we can come through. So the aura that you are speaking to now is the aura who would love to be the person who champions people through their trials, who gives them hope and shows them that there's always a way forward and that no condition in life is permanent. And Ore has a, a very powerful story um, like, like most people do, right? But, but yours is particularly so because you, you've gone through stuff that not everyone um, is able to get through the, the way you did. So we're gonna, going a little, we're gonna go back, um, take us back a little bit into your uh, into, into history, right, as I'd like to say it, and, 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 and share your story a little bit, your upbringing, and, 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 and how you ended up being where you are today. Well, my story started a long, long time ago. It started at the age of three months when my African parents came over from Nigeria to study in England. And at the time, they had to work as well as study and so when they had me they were not in a position to take care of me in the way that they would have liked so I have I had to be fostered so at the age of three months I moved into the home of strangers my new parents were white my father was Scottish my mother was English and you may be wondering that wow <laughs> three months a shock already but I must say those are some of the best times of my life. My foster parents loved me. They didn't have children of their own. And they gave me a really good start to my life and, mm. and, and told me that whatever I wanted to become in life, I could, and that they would always support me. My joy and my happy life was short-lived with them because when I was six years old, I was kidnapped. Mm. And at a very early age, I didn't know what was happening to me. I was taken by somebody that I knew. So when the person said they had my mother's permission, 
because they had a gift for me. <laughs> I went with them and I didn't know that I was going on a, a two week run really. And two weeks after the abduction, I found myself in Africa, unprepared, not knowing what was going on and felt very displaced. I was vulnerable. I didn't know anyone. I didn't understand anything. Were, and you, everything abducted, was, were you abducted I, in England and then sent to, to Nigeria? I was taken in wow. England and my abductor took me, <laughs> took me to Nigeria and under the pretense that we were going to Barbados to watch a Michael Jackson concert and that they had the approval of my mother, who was my English mom, to take me for this special treat, which is why I went. But when I got to Africa, Nigeria, I realized my mother wasn't there waiting for me because that was the plan that my mom, my English mom would be waiting for me. And it was at that point I realized something was wrong. And um, after a couple of weeks of me throwing tantrums, I was told that she was not my mom and that the person who had taken me was my mother. Now I'd been with my foster parents since I was three months old. I was now almost seven. I knew nothing else. And yes, you may be wondering that, well, your foster parents were white and you're black. Are you stupid? Why are you blind? But I was neither of those two things. I was just a child who had been loved. And I thought that they were my mom and dad. They told me once that, you know, you get a baby by either going shopping or by ordering one in a catalogue. And that seemed to make sense to me. So now that they were telling me that this individual was my mother, I couldn't believe that that was the case. And I just thought, I'm just going to wait for my mommy and daddy to come and get me because these people are lying. But my mommy and daddy, they never came. Hmm. It was the it was the biggest shock of my life up to that point. And... I didn't know what to do. It wasn't then helped by the fact that when I decided that, all right, this is the situation I am now in. And by the way, my relatives were shouting at me, yelling at me. I didn't know them at the time, but they were shouting at me to be quiet, stop throwing a tantrum. Don't be stupid. This is your new mom. And I hadn't been used to that kind of treatment. Everything was calm in, in Maidstone in Kent where my foster parents had raised me. So I was very scared. And so I decided that, okay, fair enough, I'll stop asking for my mummy and I'll go and play with the kids, the children and make friends, you know, do what I can until my mummy comes. But unfortunately for me, what I got was rejection. Hmm. Because I was a chubby child, I, I think I was cute to be honest, but you know, if anyone's ever seen Theodore on the Chipmunks, and if you, you know, I'm sorry, Alvin on the Chipmunks, and you know Theodore, you will know how cute he is and how you want to cuddle him and give him a kiss. And that's how I was. I was just the cutest thing. But for some reason, my new potential friends thought me fat and ugly and started to call me names like Fatso, Roly Poly, Okotombo, and Elephants. And it was my first experience of rejection hmm. and it hurt. It, now, it, had, it you, hurt. Had, you, had you made any contact then with your birth parents at that point or they were, they were still out of the picture when you were in Nigeria? In, in, fairness, to, in fairness to my parents, and, and this is something that I mentioned in my book, it's, it's quite a big part of my book actually. In fairness to my parents, they were visiting every two weeks. So I knew them. That's why I went off with my birth mother 
because she said I'd taken permission from your mom. But I think because they didn't want to confuse me as a child, they let me call my white parents mummy and tried not to confuse me too much with, yeah. And so I didn't think that they were my parents. I had never stayed with them ever that I can recall. I'd been with my foster parents for almost seven years. And, and so they had been in my life and they cared. This was not a case of neglect. That's not why I was fostered. And, you know, it's a long story of the way things were back then. Lots of African parents put their children in foster carers uh, into their custody. And it just so happened that my foster parents fell in love with me. And I think my mom got wind that they intended to keep me. And I think that's why things kicked off. Mm -hmm. But I was with my mom all through this process, as in my birth mom. She took me to Nigeria. She was with me in Nigeria. I couldn't call her mother, though, because... I didn't feel that she was, that took some time. And I I now know that she did what she did out of love. But at that point in time, I suffered uh, because I wasn't accepted. I There was no space for me in which to speak my pain. The relatives were shouting at me. The children were calling me names. And I grew up into a teenager who resented herself. I self-loathed. I got bigger and bigger as I grew up and the name calling continued. And by the time I was 14 years old, I hated myself. Hmm. How long were you uh, in Nigeria? I was in Nigeria from the age of, because I turned seven two months after I was taken. So I'd say from seven till 18. So 11 years I was, I was there. How did you get back to the UK? When I was eight, when, when I was 11 years old, my birth father died. Wow. And that threw us into some abject poverty it was a struggle for my mom my mom was only 31 I was 11 and I had my younger brother youngest brother was five months old so we kept on trying to survive trying to survive and then by the time I hit 18 my mother just threw in the towel and said I need to get you kids back to England because you get a better chance there we'll get more support Mm -hmm. and so she took me back to England at the age of 18 when I came back to England I wanted to reconnect with my foster parents who I thought were my real parents initially but my birth mother kept on telling me that they no longer lived where we used to live and that there was no way of me trying to find them this was back in the 80s we had no internet there was no there were no social media platforms on which you could type in a name and um, I just felt that there was nothing I could do We had a program in England called Surprise Surprise that used to be hosted by Scylla Black and she would reunite people who had been separated for one reason or another. And I had had considered going to her show, but my birth mother strongly discouraged it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So by then I was very Africanized, you know, as a a child in Africa, you do what you're told. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that, I didn't feel I had the freedom to act. So when she discouraged it, that was the end of the story. So that was that for a couple of years. How did you get through or through those um, formative years, I'd like to call it, right? You had your first shock of rejection when, you know, the kids were, you know, calling your names and, and all of that. And then, and then now your father dies and then now you have to move back. Uh, how did you get through those challenging times? Because for a lot of people, that's where life really gets ugly, right? They either just, just lose it completely, right? Or... or you know, end up on a, on a, on the wrong tracks and, and never able to regain, you know, their, 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 their true selves back, right? What was it that kept you 
uh, in line, so to speak? And, and, and how did you find that motivation and, and, and hope through those challenging moments? I had, I, there's an incident that happened to me when I was 14 years old, and I'll never forget it. It's a story that I share with young people a lot because it is important that everyone realizes, but especially our young people realize that we shouldn't allow other people to define us. Mm. By the time I came back to England, I had been defined by other people. The six-year-old that was taken from Maidstone had changed completely because when I was taken, I was a bubbly, confident, bouncy, friendly little girl because my foster parents had created an environment for me to thrive. By the time I came back, I had changed completely. And the defining moment happened when I was 14 years old and I was invited to my first party because when I was a teenager, I, I was never invited to parties because people my age they didn't think I was cool enough to to come to their parties and so I was almost like the ugly duckling I was I was always sitting on the outside looking in wanting to belong and wanted to be cool but I'd made a friend in Nigeria when I was about when I when I was about eight and she was lovely and she grew up to be really really cool you know attractive popular and continued to love me still and she got me through secondary school because she would introduce me to people and say, this is my sister, this is my sister. And because she was cool, people would sort of like put up with me. So she invited me to her party because she, she'd moved when, when she was about 13. And so I went, cause I thought, oh, this is gonna be a cool party because she's so cool. When I got to the party and I got to the door, there were two boys standing at the door. Sometimes I tell this story and I can maintain my composure. And sometimes I struggle. It depends on the day. And I walked up to the door, very excited about this party. And there were two boys at the door who stopped me. I said, excuse me, what do you want? Now my heart started to pound when I heard this, this, because I was used to bad things happening to me by now. And in my head, I was thinking something bad's gonna happen. Something bad's gonna happen. In fact, by the time I was 14, I had a catchphrase, which was, why do bad things always happen to me? It was, I just expected that bad things would always happen in my life. So when they said, what do you want? I was like, oh my gosh. And then I said, oh, I, you know, I'm here for my friend's party. And I told them her name and they looked me up and down. Sort of like assessing me. In their heads, I'm assuming they're thinking, and this is Nigerian lingo, thinking that who is this house girl that wants to come to our party? I'm, I'm assuming that's what they're thinking. And so when they finished looking up, looking at me up and down, they say, are you sure? That is the most loaded question I have ever been asked. Are you sure? And I thought, am I sure about what? Am I sure about the fact that I've been invited? Am I, am I sure that I belong here? Am I sure that I'm good enough? All these questions were going through my mind. And I said, breathing, holding my composure. People were watching, by the way, giggling, Nobody intercepted this. They just were having a good time watching me being humiliated. So I said, do you know what? Could you just go upstairs? So I'm now begging in a way. Could you please go upstairs and go and get my friend? And she'll tell you that she invited me. And in my mind, I'm thinking, 
when my friend comes downstairs, she's going to vindicate me. She's going to give these boys a piece of her mind. So I'm really excited about the fact that all these people laughing are soon gonna learn that I'm important to my friend. I mean something. But the boys came back and said to me, sorry, we didn't find her. And they stood like this in the doorway, looked me straight in the eye, so eye contact. And I did the only thing that I knew how, Fred. I turned around and I left. Mm. People watched me while I was doing this. It took me two hours that day and three buses to get home. And I cried all the way home. And by the time I got home, I concluded that, Ore, you are the most useless, worthless person that I know. And that was a defining moment for me because at that point, I didn't think I'd ever have a family. I didn't think anybody would want me. I didn't think I'd have any children. I thought to myself, do well in your education so you can get a good job and earn good money. And at least you'll get respect through status. So that was my, my thinking. So when my mom said, you're going back to England, I was like excited. I'm like, yes, I'm going back to England because in England, people didn't treat me so badly. You know, in Maidstone, I was one of three black kids and I didn't even know. I mean, of course I could see I was brown, but I didn't, you know, it didn't mean anything. I was at home, I, you know, I was in my element. So I thought, I want to go back to England. On my return, and now I was in London, I got the same treatment. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And the treatment went on for a while. And then one day I sat down and this is where the new me was born. Or I would say the six-year-old was reborn because I was always in there. And I sat down and I thought, Ore, there's one thing that your life has in common now that it did in Nigeria. And that one thing is you. Clearly people know that you are a victim. You carry yourself like a victim. And so you're an easy target. Way. Yeah, yeah. So you're an easy target. So, so I got that. I got that insight. But I thought, so what can I do about it? I, you know, there was no mental health support of any kind. There was no auntie to come along and say, do you know what? Let me take you to a confidence building workshop or a, or to say, do you know what? Let, let us put you in a drama, uh, you, you know, in, in a drama group where you could. I had none of that. So where did I, where could I start? And then I thought, I know where I'm going to start. I'm going to make a list. <laughs> that might sound silly or simple, but I thought, I'm going to make a list. And I made a list of everything that I thought was positive about myself. None of them included looks. Because by the time I came back, I knew I, I was wrong, but in my head, I thought I knew that I was ugly, fat, and unattractive. That, that really was my conclusion as far as physically. I was concerned because of all but the things that you were told exactly um, that I'd been told because I constantly you know I, I never knew I was fat until they told me and so I went to the mirror and I kept thinking but well, I don't look I don't look like I'm fat and then one day at the age of maybe 12 when my body started to change I thought oh my gosh they're right and from then on I relied on the mirror to tell me who I was you know mirror mirror on the wall mm -hmm. who is the fairest of them all and my mirror would say to me, it ain't you, mate. It ain't you. So I, I, didn't, I didn't make a list based on my physical attributes. I made a list based on my 
qualities as a person. So my skills, my talents, my personality, my attributes, and the list was long. And then I thought, let me make a list of things that I don't think are so great about myself. And that <laughs> was one, of course. I'm not attractive. I'm not cool. And also I'm a doormat. People, I let people walk all over me. But when I looked at the list, I thought my bad list was so much shorter mm. than my long yeah. list. And I thought, do you know what you can do, Ore? Those things on your bad list that you don't like, you can work on some of those. I mean, you know, just go and lose some weight if you're not happy with how you look. I'm not suggesting that we need to lose weight to be confident. That's not what I'm saying. But clearly it bothered me. And it had become a label. And so I thought, and, and then I thought, okay, I join Weight Watchers. That was the first time I'd ever heard of Weight Watchers. I'll join Weight Watchers. And before I knew it, three months later, I'm looking different. I'm thinking, I wasn't thinking, Aura, you're attractive. Do you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, Aura, you can do anything. That's what now, I was thinking. Did, did anyone take you through that exercise? Because for a lot of folks who get into that, um, you know, stage of life where they're, you know, starting to question some of these negative uh, thoughts right and then you know start writing because I, I had a guest on the show one time who um, actually went through that exercise right had his son write on all those um, positive things compared to the negative things and realized those negative things filled in comparison to all that did someone take you through the x how do you discover that ability to do that I, I, I there were a couple of things that m may have I don't know, because it was just a thought that came to me, but mm -hmm. clearly thoughts don't come from nowhere. Mm -hmm. They come from somewhere. Perhaps a the book you read, someone you came into contact with or something. Yeah, it has to be from something. And then, because I've had to write my book, of course, and I've had to think, because some of these things are in the book and I anticipate that people think, well, well yeah, okay, oh, well, I'm good. You made a list. But then I realized that one of the reasons that I was able to have the ability and the capacity to do so is because the six-year-old was still in me for one. Mm -hmm. My father, my Scottish father had told me that, Ora, you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. He had mm -hmm. always told me mm -hmm. that I was a princess. Mm -hmm. he, I had quite a lot of skills, but for a six-year-old, by the time I got to Nigeria, I was very outspoken. Mm -hmm. My headmistress, because we had to go back to my head, my primary school, when my mother needed to reinstate her stay after fleeing the country. So she said, all right, she's the brightest child I've ever taught to date. So I think that intelligence, mm -hmm. plus I'd now heard my mother's side of the story. And I realized that all this happened to me because two women loved me, mm -hmm. not, not two women, but two sets of parents mm -hmm. loved me and wanted me so badly. And I sat down and I allowed that to land with me. And I thought, if they love me, there's some good somewhere. So let me make a list. So that's how that came about. Now I know not not everyone will, will be that fortunate. I know that, which is why <laughs> I thought, okay, all right, you can make your own contribution because those six years of formative years for me clearly made a difference. And every child deserves that. And that is why I'm so passionate that you know, if I can get my hands on every child possible in the world, I want to tell them who they potentially are. This, this is a very powerful concept here. I, um, my guest last week um, 
shared a similar story about when he was in high school. He had a stuttering problem. He was an immigrant. He had to come, I think he had moved from Uganda um, to Canada. And of course he had an accent, but then he, he had a stuttering problem as well. And then one time his the teacher of the class asked him to, to share his story. And then when he started talking, of course he started stuttering and the kids, uh, the mean kids who were in the classroom told him to go back to where he came from. And that shattered his self-confidence that when it got to 10th grade, um, he dropped out of school. And so he, I, I, he talked about how powerful some of those negative words are, um, right? Whether, you know, whether they're from you know, a friend or a parent and, and the impact that it, it can have. And then fast forward a few years, he got into another group of people who used positive words uh, to describe him. And that helped him break or overcome that stuttering problem uh, that he had. So I, I see this as a, as a double-edged sword, right? The negative words, and in your case, you know, when you left England, you were you know, that confident you know, young six-year-old. And then when you got to Nigeria, those negative words kind of broke you. Would you agree with that statement that the words that we speak of impact on, on the lives of other people. I, I, I agree. I, to, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and that is why, I mean, I, I work, I go into schools a lot and I work with them on the presenting skills, you know, public speaking. But when I'm training them, I always say to them that the best speakers are those who care about how others feel, because then you will choose your words carefully. You'll never want to hurt somebody's feelings. You'll never want to cause offense, you know, or, or incite a riot. You will say words that edify, that uplift, that educate and inspire. Words are very, very powerful. Very, very, very powerful. Wow. We need to choose them carefully. Couldn't agree more. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Time with Fred, an inspirational radio broadcast with your host, speaker, and life coach, Fred Getty. Thank you again for for joining us. I'm speaking today with Ori Okungbayo, joining us all the way from London, England, sharing her story about how she was able to overcome some of the challenges in life. So or you, you started this, this coaching program or this coaching business where you're now speaking into the life of kids, right? I mean, you, you found yourself and you, you're doing uh, what you love the most. And then another tragedy happened at some point when you lost your husband. Yeah, in 2016, very suddenly, it was, it was really suddenly. My husband used to cycle to work. He was very fit. He was a triathlete. He was a marathon runner. Even though we lived in England, he'd done the San Francisco run. He'd done wow. he'd done another one in in America. He'd done two. He did two, and he did a few in England as well. So he was very fit. And then one day he, he came home and said, um, "I'm struggling to breathe." We went to the hospital. They found cancer cells, and that was really the beginning of this journey. Ten months later, he was dead. Wow. What did that yeah. do to you? I mean, it's you—you you lost your dad at a very young age, and then now, you know, your your husband. How old was he when he died? He just turned fifty. Wow. What did that do to you? Your 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 mindset and, and everything else, right? You're the one now inspiring people, and and now you have to deal with another another tragedy. What it's done to me. This is a. I want to be careful what I say because I don't want it to be misunderstood. Tunde's death was the worst thing that ever happened to me. But Tunde's death was also the best thing that ever happened to me. Why do you say that? 
because now I know <laughs> who I really am. Mm. See, I, I say to people that you never know who someone really is until they either become wealthy or their back is pushed up against a wall. So they're challenged. You never know who people are. And it's in, in, in when we have difficulties or challenges or hardship that our true nature is exposed. And Tunde's passing away exposed my true nature. And I have to say that I was really pleased to meet me. That's a very a powerful statement. It's a very powerful, and I understand exactly what you're what you're talking about. And I think it goes back to that beginning quote and beginning. And I think this is it's really worth repeating. And it says the most beautiful people I have known are those who have known trials, who have known struggles, and who have known loss, but they found their way out of the deaths. Elizabeth Kubler Ross, would you agree with that statement? Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. I wish I could give everyone who's suffered loss or are grieving just a hug. I know that we all grieve in different ways and I respect that, I appreciate that. And I'm not going to say that the way I grieved was the perfect way to grieve because I decided I was going to be strong about this because of my daughters. I, I didn't want them to be afraid that life would, things would fall apart because they'd lost their dad. And so I thought I would be very strong. But in my taking that stance, they had no opportunity to speak about how they were really feeling because I wasn't showing or speaking about how I was feeling. And so they were, they were tackling things and dealing with things internally, which then manifested itself in panic attacks mm -hmm. with my young one and then depression with my older one. Mm -hmm. So there's learning in there. There's learning in there and uh, things have changed. <laughs> things have changed. They can now come up to me and say, mommy, I'm not feeling so, so I don't think I'm feeling so great um, with my mental well-being. I think I'll make an appointment to see my GP or my doctor just to keep, stay on the safe side. And they will openly come and tell me that. Whereas before, everyone was just being this strong person because we didn't want to talk about the elephant in the room. We were not going to upset anyone because it looks like mom is having a good day. So I'm not going to tell her that I'm feeling sad that my daddy's dead or something like that. Whereas now, things are a lot more relaxed. So I've, I've, I'm still strong. But I show my feelings a lot more. And if I'm struggling with things now, I don't, protect, I don't protect my daughters from it anymore. Protecting them was never the answer. Speaking my truth was the answer. And now I do. You know, I think this goes back already to the conversation we're, we're having the other day um, about vulnerabilities, right? And, and this is where men mm -hmm. in particular are notorious because we, we tend to, because of the way society views the, 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 the male figure, right? You know, men are tough men don't cry, you know, you don't be a sissy. And so men yeah. go through life and they tend to suppress those emotions because if I cry, you know, my, my, my friends are gonna make a mockery of me or they're gonna call me names. And so even though I'm hurting, um, I'm gonna suck it up uh, as the yeah. saying goes, right? And not, and not share it because I, I can't afford to be vulnerable. And so we tend to bottle, you know, these feelings and these emotions until it, get, it gets to a point where we can't take it anymore. And then it starts manifesting, to your point, itself in very ugly ways. Um, how important is it, right, um, from not even from a male's perspective, but just, just from a human perspective to, to say it's okay that I'm hurting. It's, it, it's okay that I'm, that I'm going through this, right, and not mask these feelings and pretend that everything is okay when it's not because this is a 
a problem that I've seen occur uh, in, in so many different settings, right? We don't want other people to be to let in, right? We don't want to let people, and I get that we have to, you know, be mindful of who we let into our lives. I, I respect that, but but when we're hurting and we can benefit from the counseling of someone or maybe the listening ear of someone, um, why is it such a big deal? Oh gosh, gosh, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is. Don't keep it together. Don't be a man, be a human being. Mm-hmm. Cry, mm-hmm. cry yeah, if you want yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Cry if you want yeah. to. And so all these experiences, um, help shaped what you do now right your mission you know your training your coaching and and you do a little bit of mental health as well and you have a book coming out knocked for six can you tell us about that book well knocked for six is a book that i should have written years ago but i think the timing is perfect now and knocked for six was meant to be a bit more detail about what happened to me between the age of three months old to 18. yeah so that's what it was meant to be but I, I wanted the book to be useful. I wanted it to add value and I wanted it to make impact. And so Not For Six is a combination of my story, which makes up 70% of the book. And the rest of it is the breakdown of my Thrive model, which is a program I created for young people to help them thrive and excel in life through developing their confidence, enhancing their communication skills, and managing their mental health. And so in the book are tips in there, but it's written in a way where the toolkit in the book, you could literally just pick it up and it feels like either a workbook or a handout where you could just have a look at the quick tips and think, I'm going for an interview today. Let me have a look at Auntie Ore's book and see what she suggests I do. Make eye contact, project my voice, don't be nervous. Or, you know, oh, you know, I'm feeling a bit stressed. Oh, let me have a look at Auntie Ore's book and see what she wrote about you know, managing my stress levels, being emotionally resilient. And so I I want it to be a go-to book in a simple way, because it's quite simple, the book, but also be a powerful, uh, a powerful uh, way of getting a story across to say that we all have stuff that happens to us. People have had it worse than me. Some haven't. We all have our stories to tell, but our stories can either make us or break us. It's our choice. But of course, sometimes we need a little bit of help. Wow, what a, what, what a, what a powerful uh, and positive outlook or that you have. One of the questions that I, I, I ask a lot um, of my guests on the podcast is, is what defines them? I mean, you hear some of these stories and you wonder how do they keep going, at, right? And, and I wanna ask you that, that question as we kind of start winding down here. What, what defines you? What, what keeps you going in spite of all that you've been through um, in life? The truth about, I, I, I mean, I am a Christian, so I do believe in God. Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I'm not suggesting that everybody does and everybody should, but I do believe in God. It's your personal and faith. With, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And within that belief is this understanding that my life is a journey. Mm. It, is, it is a journey for me to become the best version of myself that is available. And, and I'm not anywhere near there yet. And life is a roller coaster. It's it's about ups and downs, twists and turns. And I look around the world and I see people who are so much worse off than I am. The children in Yemen, I just want to weep. You know, so I see people, and, and I think to myself, I've been given this gift of life. Shouldn't I just live it? 
I've, I've only got two quotes that I ever made up in my whole life. So in this podcast, I'm going to share them both. I share the one that's relevant now, and then I'll just share the other one just for the fun of it. And so at the, at the end of this book, I write 12 lessons that I've learned. And my younger daughter said that's her favorite part of the book. So 12 lessons that I've learned. And at the end of that, this is my new quote. Yeah, so you can quote me and uh, yeah, attribute Absolutely. it to my name. Yes. Yeah, say Auntie Ora says this, because that's what the young people call me. They call me Auntie. So, so this is what I say. We are not just on this journey of living to survive. We are on this journey of living to thrive. I think you need to say that again. It's so powerful. We are not on this journey of living to survive. We are on this journey of living to thrive. Mm. How true, how powerful. Yeah, that's what I want for everyone, especially our young people. It is so important. And the other, I have to share the other quote with you. It's not relevant, but it's something that I use when I'm training in public speaking because young people, are, they're just so amazing. I love them. And, you know, they're, they're, they're the group within our communities where when you contribute to them, you know that they appreciate it. You can tell, you, you, you know, they come and say, thank you. You can see the change in them. So I love working with them. So when we're talking about how do we structure a speech, you know, okay, you want to give a, a let's say you want to give a three to five minute speech. How can you organize your speech? I always liken structuring a speech to a three course meal. And so this is a quote they know me for. I say to them, food is to the body what words are to the mind. Mm. So those are my two quotes in this life. So <laughs> I thought I'd just they're, share them. They're, they're very powerful. Yeah, food is to the body what words are to the mind. And, and, and we all just witnessed or heard, you know, your powerful story and, and the impact that words uh, ha had on you. Or there's someone probably listening to this podcast and, you know, maybe going through some really challenging times, whether it's maybe a loss of a loved one, a loss of a job, maybe a COVID-related impact or, or whatever. What would you say to that person right now? What I would say, and I cannot go into the different things that I have experienced to date, including loss of income, loss of an investment, loss of my home, different things I've been through you know when they say there's always light at the end of the tunnel it is so so true and all I will say to that individual is just keep on putting one foot in front of the other keep on going if that entails holding somebody else's hand that's what you do if it means that you need to stop for a while and take a break and take a, a breath and cry do that but it is so important that each of us choose to have hope because moving forward is a choice mm. it, it really is and every human being unless they are locked behind a, a prison wall and at some point they will be released but unless you're being held captive you have the choice to have hope and with hope things start to happen and when things start to happen things change my life has shown me that no situation could be so desperate as for me to give up and give in I have to pick myself up 
and keep moving forward. And I have to tell you where my journey is taking me so far, because I'm not at my destination yet, but the path that my journey is leading into, I am so, so happy that I chose to have hope. And that's what I would like to share with anyone who may be listening. Wow. And so I know you're, you're a trainer. I know you, you speak, uh, you train young people, especially, and you probably were doing this um, in person. And then now we have COVID. If, are you doing these fire virtually as well? You know, perhaps there's someone watching or listening in the United States or Canada, wherever, and may want you to come speak to their kids or school. Or are you, are you doing this virtually? Now? I am doing it virtually. Okay. I am, I am doing it virtually. And how do they I'm get here, a hold I'm of here you? for any young person who needs me. My website is www.ore-lu.com. And I'm happy to spell that for you. Yes, please. So www.ore-lou.com. And please check out my mental health page. It's, it's, it's my favorite page on my website. Or as, as, we, as we wrap this up, I mean, this has been such a powerful experience. And, you know, every now and then you hear stories that just uplifts you that just lets you know that wow if, if Ori could do this if Ori was able to go through you know this this challenging experiences that she had you know that that gives me a little bit of hope and that's what this podcast is about right perhaps you're you're listening or you're watching and you're in, in, in the deep of things you're, you're going through the valley of the shadow of death uh, so to speak and wondering how am I ever going to be able to get out of this you can if, if, if Ori based on what she shared uh, was able to get through this. It gives me hope, and I hope that it gives you hope that that you can too. And, and before we end, I wanna, I wanna quote her, and, and this is a powerful quote that that she gave us a short while ago. She says, "We're not on this journey of living to survive. We are on this journey to thrive." And this is original and exclusive to Ori Ogunbai. I didn't make this up. You heard her say that. But are any final thoughts um, as we as we wrap this up? Yes. I would just like to say that if anyone is struggling, please ask for support. Mm. No man is an island. Mm. And there have been times, because I don't want to come across it, I fixed this myself. Mm. I have had a lot of support and help, mm. but I've also chosen to ask for the support or accept a helping hand. And pride always comes before a fall. Mm. So I would say, if you're struggling, Find someone, talk to them, because a problem shared is a problem halved. Hmm. Couldn't have said this any better. Ori, thank you so much for coming on the Time with Fred podcast and just opening up, sharing your story with us and, and sharing those tips and lessons. And, and thank you for, for what you're doing. I mean, you didn't you didn't let this define you. You're, you're paying it forward by sewing into other kids and inspiring um, the world with your story. Uh, I, I do wish you well, and hopefully we get to connect again at some point and to you um, our audience for for tuning into this edition of time with fred and until next time stay well